Hello and welcome to Behind the Scenes at the Museum with me, Tiffany Jenkins. This is a regular podcast in which I talk to guests about the big ideas, the trends and the controversies that the cultural world is grappling with. We take a peek at wonderful and strange objects, rummage around in storage rooms to see what hasn't made the pedestal shortlist and explore some of the challenges that cultural artefacts and their histories pose. So at the very moment of acquisition by the British Army and then the British state and then their dispersal through the museums of Britain, there was concern from the British Prime Minister about the way in which this was being handled. Episode 1, The Magdala Treasures and President Macron's Sar Savoir Report. I've come to the V&A in London to speak with Tristram Hunt, its director since 2017. Prior to that, he was a Labour MP for Stoke-on-Trent Central, and he's also a historian by training. This is a huge, sprawling museum, founded in 1852, named after Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. And as I stand here in the lobby waiting, I'm surrounded not only by quite a lot of people, but reaching out far beyond my eyeline are over two million artefacts. There's a lot I could talk to Tristram about today, but I really want to concentrate on the thorny issue of repatriation, what museums can do and should do or should not do about objects that groups want back or those that come with colonial baggage. It's a subject I've written extensively about, but it's also a subject that the VNA is in a prime position to confront. Hi, I'm Femi OK. Today, why are looted Ethiopian treasures from the 19th century still in the UK? I'm Malika Bilal. A new exhibition in London showcases plundered artifacts from the Abyssinian Empire, casting a spotlight once again on the debate over whether the spoils of war should be returned to their home countries. The South Kensington Museum, which became the VNA, was a museum born of the colonial moment. We were established in the mid-19th century. One of the origins of our collection is the East India Company repository. So we should be absolutely open and clear about that colonial prehistory. And I think people are interested to, to know more about it and discover it. My name is Tristram Hunt. I'm the director of the Victoria and Albert Museum. So we are standing in the silver galleries of the Victoria and Albert Museum in South Kensington. And in front of us is a display cabinet which says Magdala 1868. And inside are an array of Bibles, textiles, jewellery, metal crosses and photography. But at the heart of the case are two remarkably beautiful artefacts. There is a gold chalice and then there is a crown. There is the Magdala crown. And this display points to the history of this collection, how it entered the Victorian Albert Museum and its meaning today. And it's about the Abyssinian expedition of 1868 in which Sir Robert Napier traveled to what 
we call Ethiopia today to take on Emperor Theodore II, who was holding uh, British citizens hostage due to a long-running dispute uh, with the British government surrounding their level of support for his ambitions in East Africa. Um, he surrenders the hostages, but the Magdala Fortress is stormed. He then commits suicide during the battle, and in the aftermath uh, of the battle, huge riches are taken from the Magdala Fortress, and then they are dispersed after they've been through the hands of the British government through various museums, notably uh, the British Museum, the Victoria and Albert Museum, and in time, the British Army Museum. So what was the thinking about that sequence of events at the time? How was it seen? It's very interesting. On the one hand, it was regarded as, in its own terms, a textbook colonial intervention in that there was a need to release British hostages, there was a need to teach, in their terms, Emperor Theodore a lesson about his interaction with the British state, and there then wasn't occupation, that there was a, a military intervention which succeeded in, in its objectives, and then there was a retreat from that arena of battle and as they retreated famously they took 15 elephant loads of loot of British army loot with them but when the question of what to do with some of these artifacts which were then purchased by the British government from the British army the prime minister at the time William Gladstone and we have one of his uh, quotations um, here in 1871, the House of Commons holds a debate on whether to purchase a gold crown and chalice, as we see before us, from the army, from the British army, that were taken from Magdala. Uh, and we see the quote that he, Mr. Gladstone, the Prime Minister at the time, deeply regretted that these articles were ever brought from Abyssinia and could not conceive why they were so brought. They were never at war with the people or the churches of Abyssinia. They were at war with Theodore uh, II, Chudros, who personally had inflicted on them an outrage and a wrong, and he deeply lamented for the sake of the country and for the sake of all concerned that those articles, to us insignificant, though probably to the Abyssinians sacred and imposing symbols, were thought fit to be brought away by a British army. What about when they entered the museum? Have you any record of how they were received then and what happened to them? As, 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 as Gladstone suggests, they, they were not um, initially regarded as works of, of great wonder. Um, I think when we look at the depiction of the apostles, when we look at the filigree, uh, when we look at the, the, the shimmering gold before us, I think we all recognise these as works of great um, design and artistic endeavour. But they were within our collection, they, they, they stood in our sacred silver galleries, but they were always the property of the British government on loan to the South Kensington Museum and then what became the Victoria and Albert Museum. And they only then entered the collection as the property of the museum in the late 20th century. So you saw during the course of the 20th century some artefacts from the Abyssinian expedition handed back to Ethiopia because they were British government property or indeed crown property. When they then became part of the collection of the Victoria and Albert Museum, they then had a different legal status. 
And what about now? What are you trying to do with this exhibition here? Because I take it it's a new exhibition. So this is a new exhibition. It's a small display, but it's an important display. And it says we are going to be very open about the nature of our collections, the colonial history of this institution, and the contemporary debates around provenance, restitution, and cultural exchange. And this display was developed in conjunction with Ethiopian diaspora and Rastafarian communities. It was opened alongside the Ethiopian ambassador, the poet Lem Sisei, Ethiopian representatives. We are in ongoing dialogue with the Ethiopian government in Addis Ababa and their, and their representatives here. And it's a way, I hope, that the museum shows it, it takes incredibly seriously the, the prehistory of these objects, their colonial heritage, and how we think about it today. So do communities want any of these objects back, as it were? Well, the Ethiopian government in 2007 um, asked for the return of these items, and we've got a continuing dialogue with, with, with the government there. My, my ambition is for these to go on loan, on long-term loan, to Addis Ababa, and to build up over time a really strong intellectual and cultural partnership with curators and conservators and community groups and uh, interested parties between Addis Ababa and London. And we're, we're involved in those conversations at the moment, but there are, there are big political difficulties surrounding them. What are the political difficulties? The difficulties are that the, to borrow the items, the Ethiopian authorities would, would have to admit that they belong to us. And we understand that they, they don't feel that they can say that. Um, but under the terms by which we are established and we operate, um, we can only lend things if we're, if we're certain about the legal status connected to them. Do you think that's a good thing? Yes, I mean, I, I, I think uh, the, the trustees of the V&A have a legal and a statutory obligation to care for the collection. And we will only lend items out if people are absolutely clear about to whom the property belongs. And there's, a, there's proper contracts surrounding that. All of that said, you know, we are, we are very keen for long-term loans and partnerships around that. And we more than understand... The, the reticence of authorities in Ethiopia and their willingness to accede to that. What would you say your favourite object in this display case is? My favourite object is, is right in the middle, which is the crown. This was made in Gondar in Ethiopia, so it's not from Magdala. It was taken to the Magdala fortress by Theodore. So he himself had acquired it from elsewhere and brought it into his treasury and his collection it's a three-tiered crown decorated with really delicate beautiful filigree work and embossed with the images of the apostles and the evangelists and again it speaks to the the christian heritage and this sense of a shared christian heritage that theodore uh, hoped to uh, lean on but also it speaks to the complexity of the restitution conversation because this is from Gondar, it's, it's not from Magdala, it belongs to the church, doesn't belong to the state. The manner in which it was acquired is, is unclear. And so when you, when you begin to 
unpick the, the lineages of each object, it, it becomes a lot more complex. You're listening to Behind the Scenes at the Museum with me, Tiffany Jenkins. In this episode, I interview Tristram Hunt, director of the V&A in London, about the Magdala treasures and who owns culture. Coming up next, the explosive SAR Savoy report, President Macron's commissioned report on the repatriation of African artefacts which were looted during the colonial era. And just note, in future, I will be talking to those activists and community groups who want artefacts returned. Je veux que d'ici cinq ans, les conditions soient réunies pour des restitutions temporaires ou définitives du patrimoine africain en Afrique. It is time for Africa's cultural heritage to come home. That is what a report commissioned by French President Emmanuel Macron is recommending. The authors of the report say the thousands of African artifacts taken without consent during the colonial period should be returned to the continent. The report suggests returning objects obtained during armed conflict, those brought back by French colonizers between 1885 and 1960, and those loaned to French museums but never returned to Africa. We're talking very shortly after the release of a report commissioned by President Macron, a game-changer, I think, in terms of France's attitude towards repatriation. I just wonder what you thought of the report. Well, first of all, we'll see whether it is a game-changer for France's attitude because the response of museum professionals and even the politicians to the Savoie-Sar report uh, didn't seem as enthusiastic as, as some thought it might be. But it's, I think it's a really interesting, fascinating, rich and from its own perspective, logically coherent report. I disagree with the, with the conclusions to it, and I think they also underestimate uh, the, the amount of work that is going on at the moment. And they come from a socio-political stance, which, from a museum professional status, isn't necessarily the most helpful, because for them... The restitution of objects is about righting the wrongs, quote-unquote, of colonialism between the 1880s and 1960s. And it essentially means that unless a museum can produce evidence to suggest that every item in its collection was acquired with the full consent of the communities or nations or the areas from which it was acquired, then it needs to be returned to the contemporary government of the day. And... I think it becomes a lot more complicated than that when you look at the history of collections object by object. I mean, for me, um, one of my reservations was the idea of righting the wrongs of history. And it's not that history is this innocent, wonderful place and that has been misrepresented in the report. It's more that I, I don't think returning artefacts can achieve those aims. So it would be futile from that point of view. I think it's, in a sense, it's, n- it's not the role of these objects in many ways to redress what are regarded as those, those political injustices. I also think there's an there's a absolutism about it, which is against the, the ethos of the, of the museum, because, for example, where we sit, uh, the Ethiopian items sat amidst our sacred silver galleries and and you could see through the the history of design and through the history of these artifacts the 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 nature of 
the symbolism of Christian worship uh, and its different design forms in North Africa, in Ethiopia, in Spain, in Northern Europe, and, and the ability of museums to explore that history through a multiplicity of objects is, is the cosmopolitan endeavor of museums. And if all that is stripped away, and, and the report's authors say, oh, well, no, we don't want everything you know, taken out, but the, but the logic of it is, is, is that it would be between the 1880s and, and the 1960s. And th- there is a, a particularity around the discourse on Africa and the, the sense of loss around cultural heritage, which doesn't affect us so much here at the museum because of the, the, you know, we do not have a, a huge sub-Saharan African collection. That's where I have some sympathy with the report's authors in as much as the majority of sub-Saharan African artefacts are outside of Africa. And that just seems to me to be an, an imbalance that institutions could perhaps, if the conditions were right, make some attempt to distribute more fairly. And I think that's where we'll, we'll get to. I think, I think European governments should be putting more money and resource into facilities in sub-Saharan Africa to support the creation of great museums to which they would be, I think, more than happy to have on long-term loan as many artefacts as, as possible. And it seems to me the British government has a huge aid programme, some of which is well spent, some of which is not well spent. And I would like to see you know, some great cases uh, like the one we're sitting before next in wonderful museums in Addis with the right environmental conditions to ensure that the, the filigree from the 1740s is protected forever and that's, that's, our, that's our kind of obligation and, w- and it would be great to have that in Ethiopia um, and for people to see it and then to come back here after you know, a decade and then go back there and, you know, and, and build up alongside it the conversations around you know, curatorial skills, conservation, technical services, heritage management, visitor experience, all of those things that actually we're quite good at in, in, in the UK and could certainly assist because cultural tourism is going to grow. You know, this is, this is a good story for developing countries. The other concern I have, I suppose, with the tenor and tone of this report and the repatriation debate in general is this idea that one culture owns their culture. And this is kind of almost like erecting a wall around cultural artefacts. And I wonder how you feel about that. I think when people are building real walls, and we've seen this incredible upsurge of chauvinism, nationalism, Brazil, America, Hungary, um, Italy, Russia, could go on. Um, the, 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 the importance of museums as places to show, well, hold on, you know, the story of culture is the story of the interaction, exchange, adaptation, and empire is part of that. Empires were vehicles for, for the great flow and dispersal of ideas and, uh, and peoples. Yes, there were great crimes of empire, but there were also these places of adaptation and interaction and exchange as well. Um, museums are the places to spell that out and some people think well if you're you send back the objects then when do you start sending back people you know there's a line of thinking around this which which plays into a a chauvinist discourse which is unhelpful so in a way you could you could argue not only to send certain artifacts from that that geographical location back or loan them but maybe 
porcelain from China, or that it, it could be a multiplicity of objects that go back or are returned or loaned. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think I think that's really interesting. You know, why not not just lend, as it were, the Ethiopian items back to Ethiopia? Why not think about Isnik pottery um, or 1960s prints, or you know, all of the you know inc- incredible range of artifacts that the that the V&A holds? We'd love to do that. The raw truth is, we need the conditions right, and we need the the legal systems right, and 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 those elements. But we'll get there. I mean, it's going to happen. And it's exciting that it will happen. You're a historian by trade, um, and you've mentioned that we've talked a, a little bit about the sins of empire. It's a very topical question. Um, and I think you've had people in the museum talking about decolonizing the institution. How do you feel about that whole debate and that practice? I, I'm skeptical about the language around um, decolonizing the museum because this museum was born of a colonial moment and you end up decontextualizing the museum. To strip out colonialism from the museum would, would be illogical in a place like the V&A, which is so connected through the East India Company and others to that story. If one takes a step back and is more is broader around that discourse, so it's a question of diversifying curatorial staff, ensuring that exhibitions and public programming are as representative and wide-reaching as possible, uh, ensuring we have an education program which is reaching as wide. All, all of those broader components around public programming, exhibitions, education, that ensure the museum is as open and accessible as possible. I sign up to all of that alongside and where I would and where this display hopefully shows the way, is that them being very open and transparent about the colonial history and not, not shying away from it and being upfront about it. So that's, you know, this isn't kind of decolonizing. This is explaining the colonial history and, un- and understanding it. And then, yes, facing up to challenging questions today around restitution and provenance and exchange. You've just reopened or opened afresh your cast gallery. Tell me a little bit about that. So the cast courts are these wonderful two courts full of reproductions, replicas, copies, plaster cast copies of some of the great works of European, uh, predominantly, civilization from Spain, from Italy, from, uh, from France. So whether it's Trajan's Column or Michelangelo's David or the... Uh, one of the great porticos from from Spain or Pisano's pulpits. And it was this Victorian idea that working people who could not afford to go to Pisa um, or Naples or, or Rome or Florence or Paris or Berlin could come to South Kensington and see the art for themselves. And it was also, this is the, the element of this institution, supporting technical development and techniques. So to see the plaster casts, to see the electrotypes. And it seems to us particularly relevant reopening those cast courts now because of the conversation around reproduction and 3D printing and digital copying and scanning. We're back in that Henry Cole era. And one of the conversations which is alive at the moment around colonialism and restitution is, well, why not just have copies, 3D printed copies, scans 
I have to say, I would love a 3D copy of the Assyrian lions that are in the British Museum. <laughs> yes, so exactly. Well, that's the you know that's the conversation now. Where you know where should the where should the original lie and, and the questions around authenticity. What why we like the the cast court particularly is because in a sense they were the original copies. They're the original you know mass produced um, uh, fakes, and um, and we have them all in a very in a space which is enormous and almost sublime. So why not make copies? of artifacts that are contested and keep the copies and send other things back. Why retain them? There's something in the human condition that people want to see the original. Maybe that will change. Maybe the, the, the quality of production will, will shift. Um, as we sit in front of this, this chalice and this, this gold crown, I think it'd be very hard actually to produce a copy of either of these works of incredible craftsmanship in gold. So there are items which are easier to copy, you know, a, a digital copy of the Mona Lisa. But there's this famous, probably apocryphal study, which is that the Mona Lisa burns to ashes and you have a choice between going to see the ashes uh, or the reproduction and kind of 80% go for the ashes because they want to connect with it. So 2018, 2019, uh, why should the museum stay open? Why is it relevant today? Well, it's incredibly popular. Um, four million visitors, 2017, 18, coming through the doors at South Kensington. Its function is what it's always been, to showcase 5,000 years of human ingenuity to spark the imagination of the next generation. We, we are a museum not just to retreat into the sublime, but also to spur the artists, the designers, the architects, the creatives, the entrepreneurs, the wealth creators of tomorrow. We're this, as Prince Albert said, central storehouse of art and science, this seed bank for innovation. And if you look at the fourth industrial revolution, you look at that fusion between art and science, humanities, technology, design, the V&A is of the moment. This is, this is the institution which speaks to that incredible fusion of creativity. And I think we're having a, we're having a wonderful renaissance at the moment, uh, and, uh, and long may it last. Thank you for listening to this episode of Behind the Scenes at the Museum with me, Tiffany Jenkins. Do let me know what you thought, as well as ideas for future programmes on Twitter at Behind the Museum. Do subscribe, though, wherever you get your podcasts so you can get future episodes when I will be going to speak to activists who want objects returned, going deep into the basement of one of the oldest libraries in Europe, and unearthing a glorious Scaparelli gown owned not by a film star, but by Vera Worth from Bristol. Behind the Scenes at the Museum was written and presented by Tiffany Jenkins. The producer was Jack Fillimore.